Welcome to another episode of Foolproof Theology. It's great to be with you here again today. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. Today on the show, we are going to talk about history, specifically Colorado history. Now, some of you may be tuning out right now. You're like, I'm not in Colorado. I don't care about it. It's too blue. I care about Colorado. I am here. I'm a pastor here. I'm actually in my office right now. And uh, you may hear some preschool noises uh, coming from from down below where they have the uh, preschool that I office above here in Boulder, Colorado. I think this is an important topic, and I'm happy to get into it here with Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, it's my pleasure. So you're down uh, down at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver. You just moved to the Denver area, what, about a year ago? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, going on two here, but um, yeah, uh, back in 2022. And, um, you know, we can talk about some of the differences between Denver and Boulder, but for outsiders, um, they're, they're not going to be that great. So I don't want to bore them. Um, sure. <laughs> we're all, we're all pretty strange here, uh, up and down the front range. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then, uh, you're a doctor. So you got your PhD. It looks like at Temple university. What yeah. was your dissertation about out at Temple university? Yeah. What I wrote about was when Paul tells people to imitate him, um, why does he do that? And, and what is he asking them for? And I did that coming out of church planting there in Pennsylvania and trying to figure out what we had an established church. We were starting a new church. What do we need to convey? What has to get passed on um, in order for this actually to work and for this to be a Christian congregation? So that's how I got into the question. And that's what I wrote about. That's excellent. And is that published anywhere or is it just kind of in some archives we're, at Temple University? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, no, we're going for it. I'm currently writing, um, we have a publishing company uh, here down in this part of the Front Range called Ad Crucem, and they asked me to write uh, a commentary for families on the Bible. And that's what I'm working on. The first volume just came out on Gospels through Acts. Once that's done, I'll worry about publishing the dissertation. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll Understood. come later. We'll worry about that some other time. Yeah. That's great. Um, so you were a church planner out in, uh, the, uh, I think you said Pennsylvania. Were yep. you a Lutheran church planner uh, at that church plant? Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, I did that after I graduated from seminary. And, um, you know, we can talk a little bit about Lutheranism, but we have a pretty tightly controlled system. So I couldn't really, you know, being only 37 right now, I, could, I wouldn't really have time to have planted a totally different kind of a church and then already be, um, a Missouri city pastor. So that, that all came after seminary. And yeah. So that makes sense. Um, you know, I think from what I recall and hopefully I'm not doing a disservice saying my podcast guests, I don't think I've had a Lutheran on the podcast before. Just yeah. some of my backgrounds, you know, is like I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, we joined, we planted a church, non-denominational, but affiliated with Acts 29, uh, still practicing Baptists. Um, and in Acts 29, I got exposed to uh, Presbyterians. I don't believe there were any Anglicans. I think there were Pentecostals. And at Denver Seminary, it's uh, it's pretty much non-denominational, although back in the day, it was called the Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, Denver right. Conservative Baptist. But they dropped that, and um, that's that's what happens. You get what you get today there. That's not the point of this episode, though. Uh, but there are... I, I encountered Methodists, Anglicans, a lot of non-noms, some Baptists, community church people. I don't think I ever got a lot of airtime with Lutherans. Um, and so I, we studied Lutheran, Lutheranism um, right. and the Lutherans because it's just one of the, the streams. Um, 
But as far as I know, y'all trace your history back to Martin Luther himself. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, and I would say specifically my version of Lutheranism, which is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we're tracing it back to um, really the Book of Concord. So all Lutherans are going to claim Martin Luther as some kind of authorizing figure. That's very different from what we would call being confessionally Lutheran, um, which is what the Missouri Synod is, where we're using the creeds and Reformation-era confessions of our own, the Augsburg Confession being the main one, to norm what's happening in the church. And because of that pretty high doctrinal standard, that's why you're not going to run into Lutherans at a Denver seminary, because whether, whether this is good or bad in every way, that that's going to isolate us because we, we educate our own and you have to go through that system in order to be one of our pastors. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. So pretty, pretty high control pros and cons to that, but uh, can be a lot of cons, especially in our day and age. It it seems to me, (laughs) you know, that uh, from what I can tell, there's kind of two camps. You mentioned the Missouri one. Um, I'm assuming there's another one that's liberal. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah. The other one that's liberal is called the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And that, um, that actually includes, um, we had, we had a, a, a battle for the Bible kind of a thing like the Southern Baptist convention in the seventies. And our folks that left were some of the drivers in forming what's now the ELCA that got going in 1988 and brings together a couple different streams of immigration at different times, um, in American history with, kind of the Missouri Synod's wildest, most liberal people, um, and that's the ELCA. And so that's really had its own momentum since 1988, whereas the Missouri Synod is a lot in this way like the Southern Baptist Convention, that we went in a great direction at a time when everyone else was going in the wrong direction, and we're trying to figure out what that means in 2023. Okay, gotcha. So help me understand. I know these are really rudimentary questions. I appreciate your patience. Um, why, why is it called Missouri Synod? Is it, is it like, was yeah, it founded right. in Missouri or, or what is that about? Um, it's because Missouri is where, um, Adam and Eve were in the garden of Eden and right. So it's weird. Like there's this weird parallel thing where we run parallel to Mormons for a while, but you know, it's weird anyway. No, it's because a synod is like, uh, that's what happens every three years where we all come together like a, a convention in, in other churches. Um, and Missouri is where most of this has always been headquartered in and around the city of St. Louis. So we have a seminary there. That's where our publisher is and so on. Yeah. So that's, that's why Missouri, but I never explain Senate unless I absolutely have to, because people usually say synod and they don't even know what that is and it doesn't really matter, but yeah. (laughs) That's great. When, uh, when, and last question on this topic would be like, um, I'm assuming a lot of the people at your church at Trinity would be people that grew up Lutheran. Do you get people that uh, are coming to the church maybe for the first time? And what does that look like for somebody that's not Lutheran to join a Lutheran church? If you've got a pretty high control system, do they yeah. have to jump through a lot of hoops to become a member? Or what does that look like? Yeah, um, I didn't grow up. I, I didn't grow up anything. So I didn't grow up Lutheran. And um, the service, I think, is is kind of the biggest initial barrier because it is liturgical and formal and anchored around our understanding of what's going on in the sacraments. 
Um, and so that's going to govern how people behave and, and the kind of stuff that we sing and, and all that kind of thing. Um, that's probably the biggest initial barrier. As far as teaching for membership and stuff, yeah, we, we don't have, for instance, really a difference between what the pastor has to believe and what the member has to believe. So that's, yeah, we have a pretty high doctrinal barrier. Um, we have a pretty high liturgical barrier. Honestly, with people that don't grow up Lutheran, which is most of our new folks here at Trinity, um, just because of, and we'll talk about Colorado, just because of the way Denver is, um, that's actually been great because we ask quite a bit and therefore we get quite a bit, <laughs> right? It's not kind of easy in, but therefore it's also not really easy out. Um, so doctrinally and liturgically, I think, I think that works very well. Um, because we're like, Hey, you need to pay attention. And, and here's how this fits together with what happened last week. And, um, this is how this fits together with this traditional understanding of this creed that we're saying together. And I, I, I think it works great, but it does look really weird if you've just been driving around looking at billboards and looking at your phone and stuff. And then you walk in here and it's like, what are these words from, you know, the fourth century? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's been fun at our church to try to incorporate more of the Apostles' Creed. We, our church just adopted the uh, 1689 Baptist Confession, just trying to lean in our, to our tradition a little bit more and own it. Right. And so now, we, now we're trying to, like, bootstrap, okay, what does it look like to then teach people <laughs> about that? You know, yeah, not, right. not just have right. it sitting on the bookshelf, but use it, because uh, right. it's really helpful. Yeah. Um, and so I love history. Uh, that's, you know, uh, what I'm getting my PhD in is historical theology. But particularly Colorado history, it's always... Uh, uh, confuse me because I grew up in Texas. We, had, I mean, obviously I have the Texas flag. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it. Uh, <laughs> right. And so like, you know, I'm proud yeah. of my, my heritage and my sons yeah. are growing up raised by two Texans in Colorado. They think Texan is like an ethnicity. And so, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it kind of is. Um, but when I came to Colorado, I was like, what's yeah. this place about? Like, I, I've always come up here. I've come up here my whole life. Every summer I've skied up here and just like a good Texan would. And I came up here and, uh, you know, when I landed here in Boulder to plan, I was like, so what's the history of the town? What's the, what's the culture like? Because a lot of times when you're planning the church, you want to, it's not that you cater to the culture, but you want to understand what are the cultural idols or what are the narratives? What are the stories people are telling? And what I discovered was it's just not a lot. It was just kind of like, it was like grasping at straws. And then when I, back in the day when I would listen to NPR, which I don't anymore, uh, but I would just try to understand it's CPR up here, uh, Colorado Public Radio. Right. You know, I was, I was listening to them talk about uh, our history as a state. And I was like, okay, cool. Tell me about it. And they were like trying to figure out what what uh, chapter or what, what artifact from history should be celebrated in this new memorial or museum as like the featured thing that tells our story. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, what would that be? Would it be mining? And they were like, we're going to get some sandals from the – Sand Creek Massacre from the Indians that were killed there. And I was like, that, that, uh, I mean, that's not, uh, that's a complicated historical event. Uh, you know, the killing of children is bad. Uh, and that's an odd thing to kind of put front and center. And you see that in Boulder, you see that with the renaming of uh, one of the mountains. Uh, with, I can't remember which one. It, I don't think it's yeah, Pikes. Mount, I think they're trying to Pikes Peak. Is Mount Blue Sky now. Yeah. Yeah, Mount Blue Sky. So they're trying to do this. And they've been trying to do it, and they're very effective at it because most right. people here don't care because they don't know their own history. And right. so I listened to your episode on a brief history of power. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for the listener, and yeah. you'll get a more expansive version of what we're going to talk about. It's Title 168, uh, Cities 
of the mountains and plains. And so what I wanted you to share is kind of like yep. what you had kind of been out here, you're getting to know Colorado, you know, what's Colorado's history? Tell us about yeah. it. This is going to be for church planners, pastors, uh, lay people in my church, just to learn more about like, what, what are we facing here? when we're right. trying to preach the gospel and minister to people, what are we facing culturally? So what's kind of some of the history that, that you looked into? Yeah. And, and this is a good thing to do. Like you said, even if you have nothing to do with Colorado, that you would be able to do things like this where you are so that you can understand who you're dealing with and, and what they're going to face. I would say, for example, something that's going to come up over and over again in Colorado's history, which is that people are in and out. It's, it's transient and, and therefore people and things and institutions are transitory, um, that drives a lot of loneliness that I didn't see in my first call in Pennsylvania because people were so, I mean, they had the same names as the people that had settled that county, you know, in 1710. So you're dealing with it. You have very different spiritual problems based on the culture, the history, and people's grasp of it or lack of a grasp of it. So... I think maybe the first thing to go into is a fact that if you look enough up about different parts of the West, but including Colorado, is that Colorado really has any significant settlement because of the 1859 Pikes Peak gold rush. It's a little misleading. Pikes Peak is down in Colorado Springs. The gold rush was really more in the Denver area here, first in what's now Denver and then in the mountains west of Denver. Um, they call it Pikes Peak because people from other places – had no idea really what they were looking at or talking about. So they were like, well, that's out there. So it's a, it's the Pikes peak region, right? Okay. And that, that tells you that Colorado for most of its history was just distant from everything. Um, the people that did come here were coming here to get rich. Um, the exceptions being a pretty small Indian population and an even smaller Hispanic population way down in Southern Colorado that had come up from New Mexico, and, and they were doing some of the same ranching and farming that they'd been doing in northern New Mexico. Those are both pretty small populations. The parts of Colorado that are what are called the Front Range, which is everything just east of the mountains, um, Denver, Colorado Springs, Boulder, Fort Collins, um, where the weather's kind of nicest for the whole state, it's kind of pleasant to live here. Um, nobody lived here in the whole scheme of things. Almost nobody lived here. Um, and the reason being is kind of hostile to life. It's hostile to growing things. Right. Actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's a nice place to sit in the sun or take a hike. It's not a nice place to grow things. So the people that were coming here were coming here basically to get rich. Um, this happens right before the civil war starts. 1859 is when we get going. And by 1861, um, this, the population is beginning to drop. So that by the 1870 census, which is Colorado's second, really, as anything that anyone's watching, the population is way lower than it was in 1860 because so many people had, they were called go-backers. So many people had already left, either to fight in the Civil War and or because they weren't getting rich, which is the way it always goes. So already there's this transitory nature to the state. That, and there's kind of other things we can track on a timeline here, but that's a theme that in Colorado is going to persist to the present day is that if you meet somebody, not just who was born here, but whose parents were born here, you are meeting a very, very rare individual. I mean, it's almost kind of, I feel, and I have a child that was born earlier this year who is a Colorado native 
whatever she can have the bumper sticker someday but um it's it's really kind of sad that they need a sticker that says colorado native which if you come right. here they've they've got right or that there's no vacancy is that it's like the people who are actually who are actually from here are kind of under assault um in the whole scheme of things there weren't that many so if you go back to 1960 you go back to 1970 the reason i can skip about 100 years ahead is because apart from some mining in the mountains some logging and honestly all the parts of colorado that look like kansas which people are surprised to discover when they come here but there's like if you're driving west toward the mountains you got about two hours of basically kansas but with much higher taxes and more expensive fuel okay um right, right? um that's where people actually lived um but there's really not that many of them, uh, you know, maybe, maybe 2 million about 50 years ago. So we're looking at a situation where in the past half century, our population has doubled. That obviously is not natural growth. That's, that's in migration from other states, from, from Texas, from the Midwest, and then most famously today from California. But what that's going to do is that it keeps Colorado in this kind of frontier-like situation where people are always in motion and they're ready to go somewhere else too. And that, that has a certain effect on the soul that if you look at the history of any of the mining camps up in the mountains, you're going to see, um, they'd have, you know, they'd have various ways to process the ore. They'd have saloons, they'd have brothels. They'd have, and then eventually, maybe if it stuck around long enough, somebody would build a church building eventually. Right. But the church is always way behind the movement of the people. And that's true, I think, today, right? Um, is that, for instance, with just my denomination, and we can talk about church planting just front range generally, but my denomination, 20 years ago, we had four more churches in the Denver area than we do today. I'd say maybe we're mm -hmm. somewhere around 30 to 40 Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod churches today, Denver area. Um, the population of that area has doubled in that time. So we lost four churches cumulatively and the population has doubled, <laughs> right? So we're, we're in the same situation that we were in 1870, where we're trying to catch up with the miners and the people moving around and they're thinking about getting rich. They're not thinking about their souls being saved. Yeah. And one of the things that, that in all of that kind of like a lot of people seem to have a basic disposition of very individualistic, um, yeah. like, and it, I think a lot of this for, for the listeners, you can broaden it to the American context broadly, but like, like Adam was highlighting each different state, each different municipality is going to be different. But for Colorado specifically, there's, there's a spirituality of individualism, libertarianism. That's very strong here. So like right. um, maybe in, maybe in Lutheran pastoring, it's uh, you have more backing to say, well, we have high walls and we have high standards as a non-denominational church. And you know, People have good reasons for this, okay? Not all non-denominational churches are that great. But when you say you should become a member of the church, it's good to be a member of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Uh, yeah. How can you say you belong to the body of Christ when you don't belong to a body of Christ? And you start saying that to people in Boulder, and they're like, you're a cult. Like, you you are, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, they're right. very, like, suspicious of authority and institutions. Um, and so that's been very hard. And so, like, even with, with our voting patterns, with marijuana, gambling, all these matters that come on the ballot, the basic instinct for a Coloradan, for someone who moves here, is like, 
well, it's freedom, you know, and like, it's yeah. good. So we should let people live how they want. Um, right. So there's not really a his- history of uh, enculturation from a moral standpoint. It's just like live and let live attitude. Would you say that's accurate? I, I'd say it's very accurate. And, and because things remain transitory or people do, there are things that, you know, in most other Western states, you think of the Wild West and in the history of the Wild West, you're basically always dealing in the beginning with people being sort of insane, legal prostitution and legal gambling. You just have to everywhere used to be Las Vegas. Las Vegas is kind of a throwback in that way. If a place stays transitory, those forces of order in daily life that are going to say, let's not have legalized prostitution anymore. Let's not throw away most of our income on legalized gambling or, you know, sports betting at this point, right? Um, Let's not do that. That's stupid. That's not a way to have a community. That gets shut down in your Idaho's, your Arizona's, your whatever. And it gets shut down in Colorado for a little while too. But because you continue to have this in-migration of people who are here to cut ties, to pursue something that seems better, um, more interesting, more beautiful, more whatever, whatever it is that they come here looking for, um, because of that, they're not going to vote in favor of let's regulate life more in a way that would be generally beneficial. They're, they yeah. want to maximize personal choice. And so if at one time that seems maybe libertarian, functionally today, that's going to be leftist. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's on this libertarian substrate. It's not on some sort of like Massachusetts style puritanism like i know what's best for you that's why we're it's it's like you should be allowed to do whatever you want right yeah and that's the transitory nature i mean what you just mentioned is really important you if you're ministering here if you're if you're just trying to build a community for for goodness sake you know the biggest need is the loneliness uh for a lot of people i mean obviously the biggest need is reconciliation with jesus christ all of that but i'm saying just like the tangible felt need that a lot of people have is this loneliness But you're you're coming in and you've already moved here for a lot of people to cut ties, whether it's from the south. I get congregants that'll come from the south because they hated the stifling, you know, Christian culture, or they come from California. They're very they've already decided to cut ties. Yeah. So that that attitude of moving here, and I can even see that in my own when I uprooted our family up here. Um, it was a lot of like, let's see what we can we can do. We can we can make a life for ourselves. Let's see how we can stand on our own two feet. Yeah. And uh, that leads to a certain like way of pastoring people where you're going to have to address uh, key matters. Um, what about, because a lot of people, when they think of Colorado, they think of probably marijuana uh, and they think of mountains and beauty. How does, how does that play into kind of how you understand the history here? Yeah, those, those both have to do, especially the beauty um, and then later uh, things like cannabis legalization, but it has, predecessors in Colorado, you know, even when it was a very Republican state electorally was not voting to restrict abortion, for example, um, and was, was fairly loose on divorce and, and stuff like that is that it's a place to come to maximize your direct experience of significant things. It has nothing to do with other people. And so anything that's going to ask you to limit yourself, whether through, um, divorce laws that don't permit no fault divorce or whatever that might be. Um, that just doesn't make sense to people because they're here 
to get an immediate experience. And in a theological sense, they're, they're yearning for something that is actually tangible and is a productive starting point for discussion. Like, why do you, why do you so much prefer what you find in the mountains than what you live down here on the giant Denver metro area grid? You know, <laughs> uh, why are you always yearning to get back into the mountains when you've left them? Um, because you have a direct experience of the creator that you don't and you can't in the suburbs. Okay. And Denver is not different from Dallas or Kansas city in, in a lot of ways, it's different in the immediate access you have to stunning natural beauty because of that. You know, I, I think in some ways people are relatively more open, um, to having what they might talk about as spiritual discussions than they would be in a place where they have much less direct experience of nature, right? So there's something really beneficial about that. On the other hand, because everything is so direct and because they, they are here to be alone with those things and, and the sense of life that it gives them and, and the feelings that it creates in them, um, church is like, you know, fine, so I give, you know, I give you an example in the case of, you know, are, are people who already have some prior allegiance to the Missouri Senate, because if the viewers have no familiarity with Lutheranism, um, sometimes I explain it as being Missouri Senate Lutheran in a sociological way is basically like being Roman Catholic. It's the only kind of Christian you are, and it's the only kind you're ever going to be, because you are convinced that it's the only way to be a Christian. There's a lot of folks like that. So they're going to move here from Indiana, Michigan, Nebraska, and they know they're supposed to go to this church. So they do. But unlike in Indiana or Michigan or Nebraska, where they went every single Sunday, they'll come one Sunday out of four or one Sunday out of six because they're skiing or because they're hiking or because all of the reasons that they're here, that even though they, they know better, basically, they came here to be in, in something direct that isn't the kind of mediating, controlling institution that a congregation always is because you can't do whatever you want. You got to go to church at a certain time. You got to talk to people. You know, it's not, you can't just do whatever you want. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. One, uh, one thing that's been hard, uh, I remember early on in church planning is Texans get a lot of crap up here and, and, uh, you know, for good, for good reason. Okay. For good reason. Um, but I always joke, you know, well, if you want your ski town, your ski lifts to remain open, you should thank God for Texas. Okay. Cause they come up here in droves and fund a lot of the stuff y'all like. Um, but the other part is California up at, you know, university of Colorado here. We get a lot of people from California. Most of them don't darken the church door. Um, no. if they're, it's, it's kind of like a pattern. Like if you come from California, you go to see you, it's like, there's already a certain life that's been uh, chosen for you, believe it or not, and that you've chosen right. for yourself that, uh, that you're just not going to do that. But when, th during, uh, you know, the height of COVID, I was listening to all the like, uh, uh, calls with public health locally and they were always referencing San Francisco San Francisco this and I was like no like, I don't want to be I don't want Boulder to be San Francisco right and so um, talk to me about like the Californication of, of Colorado um, and what that means for us here yeah 
Californication is something that um, you can also see bumper stickers about here. Um, don't don't California my Colorado. Um, it's too late. You know, it's too late. And, and and what that means is that you know California has so many people. I mean, it's essentially like a, a mid-sized world power of a state. It's huge. Um, Thirty million people, maybe I don't even know. It's huge. Uh, if they're going to pour out of somewhere, you you can't really stop that uh, unless you want internal passports as as another callback to COVID. Unless you want that, they're coming. And what they're bringing with them is something that I think Colorado was particularly not well set up to resist. And this is something that, um, you know, if you live in the Northeast or the Midwest or the Pacific Northwest, you're also familiar with, which is your, your substrate culture from a time when America was presumptively Christian, right? We can talk about church membership levels. We can talk about attendance levels. We can talk about Bible knowledge. I'm not talking about the Bible belt. I'm talking about like the Northern half of the country. San Francisco and Boulder were very similar in being settled largely by Yankees. Yankees had fights um, in the Congregationalist Church, in the Northern Baptist Church, in um, the Methodist Episcopal Church before it was the UMC, over the nature of Scripture, which always has effects in whether people go to church, whether they care, whether they know anything. And those fights in some cases were more than 100 years ago. So you're taking a place that's even more secularized than Boulder already was, and you're dumping people from that even more secularized place into Boulder, where the predominant form of religion, let's say in 1960, when Colorado had many fewer people, was probably already some soft version of liberal Protestantism. And you're infilling that with other religious influences, such as you get in California, but Boulder is one of the few places in the world that has a Buddhist university outside of like East Asia, Naropa. And um, in addition to that, you're getting the just ambient secularism of, I don't even know what churches are for, like in the same sense that I, who don't ski, maybe that should change. But I, who don't ski, I don't go to ski shops. I, I, I don't know them. I, I don't go inside them. I wouldn't know what questions to ask. And for a lot of people, who have been secularized for generations and generations, especially across the northern half of the United States. For a lot of people, that's how churches. They're not interested, and they have no idea why they should be. Yeah, we encounter that a lot. I mean, even when Kim was working retail here in Boulder when we first moved here, and people were like, yeah. so your husband's a priest, so can you all, like, have sex? We are like, that is outwards. You know, like, they just have no <laughs> concept of being a pastor. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> a lot of the training I got in church planning didn't exactly help me understand how to deal with a lot of that. Well, and that's not, no, that's nobody's fault necessarily. It's just like, it's kind of the nature of American church planning where the idea is you contextualize to the culture and you want to disenculturate as much as possible in order to reenculturate the gospel in a new culture. That's like the contextualization model. Right. And I've written listeners have written on that in several places, but um, what that set me up for was almost a deconstruction path was where people would go like, well, what do you do? And I'd be like, I'm a spiritual teacher. And, uh, and I thought I needed <laughs> nice. to like blend in, you know? Yeah, right. And like right. after, after six months of that, I was like, yeah. this is bunk. Like it doesn't help <laughs> uh, anybody, you know, it, it, it would be better for me to just own, I'm a pastor of a Christian church, 
you know, right. really simple stuff. And then they go, what is that? And I can tell them just basic Christian stuff rather than kind of this contextualization model, which is like, you're always playing the lowest common denominator yeah. of like, you got to strip away everything that doesn't make sense to the culture um, in order to share the gospel with them, which is just crazy now that I think back on it. But what do you, what do you think about that? Have you experienced yeah. that? Yeah. And the church planning training that I received, which was particular to my denomination was not vastly different from what you just described. And the way I th that I try to think about it charitably is because I know in this case, it actually was these models for church planning were developed in like maybe the 1980s, but, but probably earlier actually like seventies, sixties. And so when they're talking about culture and contextualization, they, they're thinking like, you know, J Joan, right. Or think of some name that like a, a 63 year old lady would have, you know, Joan doesn't go to church, but Joan was baptized and, and Joan probably had some Sunday school classes and um, she's asking the wrong questions and she's probably focused on herself. But, you know, if you kind of reach across the aisle and, and figure out how to talk to her in a way that's comprehensible to her. And, and there's a way in which like on a human level, that just makes sense. That's that's, you know, that's probably fine. But those models did not assume that the culture was that Jones like grandkids are transsexuals and Joan thinks it's fine now because her phone is telling her to. And so she's actually hostile. Now she wasn't raised to be hostile. She's 63. Her kids are definitely more hostile and her grandkids probably think like you should burn at the stake. So church planning models just never, and, and certainly seminary training models broadly for, for parish pastors just didn't assume hostility. They, they assumed kind of, questioning neutrality at worst and probably just deactivated Christianity that you, as you're contacting people are just kind of starting back up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what uh, I saw a lot of success in an older generation, like a, a mega church out here in Boulder County's Flatirons church, huge church, yep. big draw. Um, and they take a lot of flack from the County for their stances because they do take a stance on biblical marriage. They're non-denominational. But they still have kind of that ethos of like, um, you know, we just want to like, I went to a service recently there and it was like, you know, maybe some of you have drifted away from church or maybe they're still trying to reach that, that demographic of people right. they, yeah. where there's, an, and, and, and for some people that works, I mean, uh, for it a does. lot of people, they, they, they go there and, and uh, they call it bumping into Jesus or all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, and, and this is not me hating on them, but I like, yeah. Right. I, I view that with a critical eye, but at the same time, like, I hope God, I hope people get saved there and, and all that. But my point is that that was the model that that church, I think, was planted in the mid 19, late 1990s um, in Boulder. Yeah. It started in right. Boulder and then moved out to buy property to Lafayette. But um, but yeah, it makes it really hard. So because church has always been a peripheral here and it's always followed yeah. booms and bust. What is it? What does it look like to build from that? Uh, kind of conception of church. Yeah, I, I think that understanding that this is a place that was that essentially never had anything like the cultural hegemony that the Southern Baptist Church did in the '80s in the Deep South, or the Roman Catholic Church had in you know Chicago land in the 1950s or something. Um, in a way, it's kind of helpful because you don't need to take the time 
to fight battles that are, are just gone, like um, legislative battles. Un until you do a lot of work of gospel proclamation, none of that is going to change. So like, don't worry about it. Right. Uh, arch conservative in Colorado means Lauren Boebert, you know, is divorcing her husband publicly. Like that's the best we've got. Right. Yeah, so, right. so we don't, we don't have people hypocritically pretending to be solid, you know, Christians in public life. So don't yeah. worry about that right now. Um, accepting that it's been peripheral means that you have to go back and do work that probably should have been done back when there was more cultural, more of a cultural foothold, but it just wasn't happening. And, and, and that's okay. We didn't see it coming. We didn't anticipate this. Um, so we're peripheral. That means I think that we should just accept that if we don't require high levels of commitment, we're not going to get anywhere. So a lot of not just church planting, but pastoral thinking and advice. And I think even the personality of a lot of pastors it, all of it is designed to be absolute, like you said, lowest common denominator, easy entry. Like it's basically rolling up to a fast food restaurant. We'll provide you with more or less whatever you want. And we're going to be as nice as we possibly can about it. Um, right. And I think, you know, there's attitudinal things like um, I don't apologize that if they show up on Trinity Sunday, which happens kind of early, you know, late spring, early summer in the Lutheran church. And we run through the Athanasian creed, which takes a long time to say, and as it says, if you don't hold to this, you will not be saved. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't start out the sermon that Sunday being like, you know, this can come off as a little like weird to a lot of us, but here's why it's actually cool. You know, it's just like, this is what this is about. So I think that um, we understanding that you're peripheral means that you just give up on a lot of the moderating or, or, or bridge building that um, previous generations have invested in, in places like the South or the Midwest, because it seemed like it would have more, a lot more traction and just say, this is what we're doing. And we're going to be as intense about it as the Buddhists are about, you know, um, meditating in public, um, in your public parks or whatever in Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. Which is always funny. Like most of the Buddhists I encounter here, they're like nominal Buddhists, you know, it's like yeah. California Buddhists where it's like, <laughs> right. yeah, they just think it means be a nice person, which is what a lot of evangelicals reduce Christianity to also, you know, <laughs> be a nice person. Right. It's very, very secular liberal of both of them. Very right. American in that way. Um, but in terms of like, how do we, if we were to imagine kind of a peripheral movement becoming central, because yeah. um, like my heart is like, I would love to build institutions here that will last for generations, um, you know, plant seeds even. It doesn't have to be in my lifetime, but at least network people, connect pastors, connect Christians, build businesses, colleges, seminaries, schools, churches, all sorts of things here yeah. that can last. How does that, how does a peripheral movement then become more, uh, if we want to call it centralized or whatever word we want to right. describe there, how does it move from the periphery? Yeah. And I mean, it's not like there aren't examples of this. There just aren't really in the past 50 years, Christian examples of this. So one thing you have to do is accept that you're operating on a longer timeline than a given human, if not even a life, at least a given human career. So if I'm going to be, professionally active, let's say between 
if you're talking about a clergyman between his mid twenties and his mid sixties, or maybe his early seventies, then you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm building or I'm trying to build things that are going to be around when my grandson is a clergyman or whatever the particular, it's a business, it's a church, it's whatever is going on. That means that I, I don't think in terms of immediate return on investment of time or money or, or labor, um, if I'm building a business, I do need to get off the ground, but I don't need to be phenomenally successful. So uh, just a couple different examples from Colorado that are not Christianity, but I think Christians would do well to, to think about and to, to learn a little bit more about. One that's really simple is that there didn't used to be a ski industry. People would go all the way to Europe to go skiing. Okay. And, um, the reason there's a ski industry is because we had guys skiing around up in the mountains during world war II, training to be sent to Europe. And then they're like, this would be a good place to have a ski industry. And they come back and they build it. It's not like right away in 1955, people are just flooding up from Texas to go skiing. Right. They have to build right. that up. They have to wait. They recognize the opportunity and then they wait to build it. And now obviously it's, if not world beating, it's certainly where the biggest thing there is in America as far as skiing goes. Um, the example that's maybe a little bit more serious and, and definitely not as fun to talk about is that that basic libertarianism that we talked about is kind of baked into Colorado is really what gets weaponized by people who are not really libertarians. They're definitely not live and let live type people. Those are our out and out leftists, which Colorado is increasingly politically dominated by. Your average person is not that motivated. They probably are basically libertarian here. Um, but the people who control our politics for reasons that there's all kinds of history going on here, um, some of which involves campaign finance, kind of boring stuff, but it ends up being important. But what it means is that eventually, um, particularly through the town of Boulder, not just the university, but also the research institutions, public and private that are around it, and then the companies that get spun off by a modern university and spun off by private and public research institutions. Because of that, um, if you have control of that, you basically have control of not only the mind, but also the pocketbook of the state. And that's really, that's really what changed, is that leftism saw the universities as absolutely key to taking over lots of other things in public life. And they carried that out in Colorado like they did basically everywhere else, right? So before Boulder was a tech hub, Colorado was basically partly Midwestern and partly Southwestern in its economy. It was mostly agriculture and oil. And now we're kind of embarrassed by the oil. <laughs> and, you know, the farmers are using way too much diesel fuel and way too much water to raise their, their sugar beets and their wheat. Um, so the tech stuff feels clean, right? Um, so what's happening is that like other places, but particularly in the city of Boulder, um, the left took over. And this is where, to me, the universities today, certainly in Colorado, are a lot like the monasteries at the time of the Reformation. They, if you don't really do something about them, <laughs> Right. Nothing yeah. is ever going to change. Nothing. Yeah. 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 That's, that's been one of the, the things I've been trying to 
tell people it's like it's a madra is it madrasa in Islam where they yeah. train up their disciples. Right. The the Department of Education here at CU, like what you see in the public schools in Denver and in other municipalities in Colorado, here in Boulder particularly, it starts there. They're, right. they're teaching these young people the social justice slogans, the approving of transgenderism, all the queer stuff started at the Boulder Library here, started at the university, and then they send them out to then go make disciples. And right. they're very good at it. And and that's getting back to the point of like the team that wants to win is always going to beat the team that wants to be left alone. And so if, if Christians don't have kind of like a winning attitude. That doesn't mean you have to become a culture warrior. It doesn't mean you have to do uh, crazy things necessarily, but it does mean like you have to, that's just reality. Like they're not going to leave you alone. They want your life. They want all of it. And so like, what, what what are we going to do about that? So what does it look like to like, maybe uh, what, what opportunities are there? I mean, you know, it, in a a dark, dark state of mind, one could go like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be a subversive. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to go to see you and I'm going to not be explicitly Christian and I'm going to rise to power and I'm going to get in power at CU and get tenured. And then I'm going to get department head. And then, then I'll come out as a, it's kind of like that faithful presence model that many of us were taught about where it's just like, Oh, over the long term, maybe you can change the institution. So, but what does it look like today? Because if I were to just, if I were listening, I'm like, well, that's really depressing, Adam. Thanks for that very depressing kind of like, story of Colorado what what are opportunities today for Colorado for Christians here to like see things change so you have you have I think two different angles of approach one is an inside the system strategy and that one is always going to require more patience and um, is probably just going to be less successful okay because it's much harder to sneak into an enemy camp and take ground and then hold it than it is to maintain ground in a much larger group. So I, I think that there are, there are Christians who believe in the faithful presence model. The problem is that the faithful presence model always assumed institutional neutrality. So they don't let you do that because they force you to make choices. They force you to perjure yourself um, in what you have to say to keep the job or, or even to get the job or they're going to force you to assent to things that you don't assent to in church explicitly so that your mind becomes, you become that kind of double-minded man that James talks about who then is unsteady in all his ways. And you see that in people's lives all the time because they've been trained to be double-minded in order to both get paid and to go to church. Um, So I'm pretty skeptical about that one because the left didn't face those odds when they took over these institutions. They were actually exploiting neutrality, tipping into favorability to themselves, right? So back in the 80s, you you had carve-outs for your assorted protected groups, racial, sexual, etc. Now, those carve-outs are just a lot bigger than they were, but they were still there. And you weren't probably going to be, you weren't going to get tenure because you were an overweight lesbian, now you might, but back then you weren't going to not get tenure <laughs> because yeah. you were an overweight yeah. lesbian, right? So yeah. They, yeah. they moved into an environment of presumptive neutrality. That's very different than today. So I think outside the system is probably the way that you want to go. And this is where you look for the people and the opportunities 
that really are being overlooked by the way that our current regime operates. So you say, okay, um, we know whether it's just falling birth rates or whether it's COVID or whatever it is, we know that throughout Colorado, as throughout much of the nation, um, participation in public school is way down, way down in all kinds of places, not, not just places that are conservative or that they're trying to, you know, whatever. Everybody yeah, even in Boulder. Yeah. Even in Boulder. Even yeah. in Boulder. And so you say, well, can I offer, we have a homeschool co-op at our church for that reason. Can we offer something and, and can people plug into that? Um, that's one, that's one way. And I think schooling is probably the place to start. There are other, I think channels we could talk about, but I think that's the place to start because there is pre-existent demand and it's something that generally in hostile non-Christian cultures, that's how Christians start is with schools. That's how they start yeah. because people want their kids to know something and you say, well, I can teach them something. And they're like, right. all right, you know, um, but that's, that's the missionary strategy that generally they adopted when they went to China for the first time, or they went to wherever, you know, somewhere in Africa for the first time, Christians would start schools. So if we're in a hostile culture and I don't want to stand around like I'm like Jerry Falwell appealing to cultural norms that don't exist anymore, I right. need to adopt some of the practices that Christians who went to obviously completely hostile cultures adopted. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, the, uh, the kind of paradigm Ren puts out the negative, uh, positive neutral world paradigm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard when people are like, I don't believe that. And I'm like, I really, I want to understand what you're saying, but it's, it's like baffling to me being in Colorado because like everything is just so, I mean, the example I always give to people from Boulder is like when we're looking for a church building, first of all, like, because we're explicitly Christian and Bible based, uh, the, the liberal churches that are dying here, they're very much like one of them, like when we, our realtor called them up. So, so we, we, when they've been have to deal with them and it was very like innocuous, somebody's looking to buy your building. And they literally said on the phone, if it's the well church, we'll never sell to them. They didn't even know it was about us, <laughs> but that's the kind of like hostility yeah, we're right. talking about here. It's right. like, there's that. And then if you try to buy a commercial property and if you were to try to flip it into a, a religious tax exempt property, the, the city would kill you through bureaucracy. That's never going right. to pass here. So you're looking at 50 to a hundred uh, religious exempt properties in Boulder, which is surrounded by Greenbelt and mountains where you're not going to be able to get a building here. And if a church planner is moving in here, the, the cost of rent of a public facility is so high, not only right. that, but those public facilities are now very disinterested in hosting churches because of pressure from culture. Um, right. uh, even, I mean, you're talking about BVSD. One of the board members of BVSD said on Twitter, this church, the wall church is a hate group. You know, so like the idea that a Christian church is going to be planted in Boulder and meet a public school and that's going to go great. It's like, it's right. fantasy world. I mean, it's so, yeah, it's definitely hostile. Um, but I'm like, why would I not want to be where the action is? Cause like you said, um, and I don't know what I always say this and I think it's right. And I'm not trying to be insulting, but like Boulder really shapes a lot of the state in terms of Denver, because yeah. from us, like you talk about the transitory nature of this Colorado, but particularly Boulder, you get college students 
that if they're Christian, they start a family here, but then they can't afford to buy a home here, so they move to Denver. Um, and so we're constantly exporting. And so what does it look like to be right at the heart of where the battle is and stand strong and be faithful? We don't have to make a make a show of ourselves. Like you said, we don't have to be Jerry Fowler or anything like that. But what, what does it look like to equip the church today? Um, and I think that's where I take a lot of hope. It's like, man, it, yeah, there's maybe more cushy uh, context. I don't know where those – I guess people say it's Florida or Texas. But I'm like, man, like I always wanted to, to – you know, go to where the action is to, to, to be, uh, be following the Lord's lead. And, and God is doing a lot of work here. I mean, he's given us a building and it's going to be finished this spring and we've planted a few churches and, you know, we're talking about starting Christian schools here. I mean, this is really exciting stuff. So I think it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're talking about Boulder specifically, it's not just that they, they export pretty much everything, public school teachers, um, People who went to school there, people that uh, in some way had their young adulthood there and then need to go somewhere else in order to have a house, whatever. Um, it's that they they lead the way that um, people who have never been there have to think about how things operate here. And so right. this is also something where when you're looking at a hostile culture, you have to think, what are the what are the you know, where where are the generation points for this network. There are lots of nodes everywhere, right? Um, but where does the power get generated? Because if I know that, then I know where to target what I'm doing, right? So, I mean, Paul probably would, if he had learned some non-Greek languages, um, he might have been happier sitting up in the mountains of Asia Minor somewhere. I mean, in a way, it might have been a more, certainly more pleasant life. Um, the church fathers thought so, right? That's where they put the monasteries, which is where they would go when they got sort of old enough or, or distant yeah. enough from, you know, like um, in a way that would just be sort of nicer. In going to Ephesus, Paul is engaging with a, a, a site of power generation. And so that's, he has to face Artemis of the Ephesians and he has to challenge, that's a, that's a mother cult. Um, it's particularly opposed to Christianity we have that in Mother Earth here in Colorado. Um, so we have our own Artemis of the Ephesians that makes us great. And, and she is great. That's what we acclaim. Mm-hmm. And when you figure out that that's where the power is generated, then you know that, okay, if I attack this, then I'm going to get a lot more done than if I attack several smaller cults from places that aren't really connected to anywhere else, not in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm inspired. So thanks for turning the, uh, yeah. turning the podcast around from doom and gloom. <laughs> um, what, uh, I have to ask with your, yeah. your podcast, a brief history of history of power. Yeah. What, what made you want to start a podcast about power? Yeah, it started, uh, I mean, it's not really brief anymore. So it's basically a lie. It's a living <laughs> lie. Um, it's like three, four years old. I don't know. We started in and around COVID just out of conversations between myself and another um, Lutheran pastor, Jonathan Fisk, about why is this happening? Like, how did this happen? And um, I kind of came out of a different context, having gone to a very left-wing liberal arts college. And so for me, COVID was like that college taking over the world explicitly. Um, Whereas he was like, what is going on? And so we were talking and then he was like, other people should hear this. And so that, that's how we started. Um, 
And what we're interested in, and we talk about all kinds of stuff, but what we're mainly interested in is how do we understand what's actually happening and then provide some kind of wisdom or learn to obtain wisdom for the lives that we have to live now as Christians. Um, because we found that mainly what the, our, certainly our part of Christ Church was lacking was wisdom. We had, the, we had good stuff on the books. We had good stuff in the past. How do we preserve that good stuff for the future? Well, I need wisdom for that. And that's, that's what we didn't, we, how do we react? Do we keep our churches open? Do we, can we serve the sacraments, right? Um, because those are very hands-on. Uh, I, I can't socially distance when I'm administering baptism. So, um, yeah, that's why it started. And, and I think that's why it's still going. That's great. Yeah. I, I mean, the topic of power is a fascinating one because a lot of people, when they, they hear me talk politically or talk about theology, You'll get words like theocrat or you just want power, all this kind of stuff. And but I think that the evangelical church has done such a poor job of equipping its it's just the broad population to think wisely about power. And uh because like at least for me, like a lot of it was very pietistic. You know, you should never want power. If you have power, you should always give it away. Uh I think some famous pastor said that one time. And so we 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 are so uh, we're so like confused on like well, what does it look like to have ambition? What does it look like to pursue influence and power? Because yeah. we've been taught for so long, it's a dirty word. You know, it's just, it's not good. And it's like, yeah. and then COVID hits and you're like, okay, I don't like that power. So maybe I should rethink <laughs> how I think of it, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. And I, I think that in addition to having a doctrine of original sin that applies to you individually, you need to understand how that gets played out. And the Bible is great on this. I mean, particularly the Old Testament, which most Christians know nothing about, shows you how original sin plays out in families, in institutions, um, in a way that's actually productive for understanding what's happening around you. If you don't know that stuff, then it's really easy to kind of gaslight you into thinking the only sinner in the world that you need to ever think of or about is yourself. Mm. Right. I mean, it's pietism, but it's also just self-obsession, which is easy yeah. to sell to people because <laughs> they have Dude, it anyway. That's a great point. <laughs> right. You know, I haven't, um, I haven't made that connection before. That's a fantastic point that a lot of the pietism just is is a is a perfect fit for a self-obsessed oh, age. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, oh my and it's gosh. Like, hey, how about you spend more time thinking about yourself? It, it's just a it's just sort of kind of a depressed or or self-flagellating version of being obsessed with yourself. Like you are by yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I, I picked up the Valley of Vision. Have you ever read the Valley of Vision? The Puritan yeah. mm -hmm. prayer yeah. um, and I prayed through, through for a while, but it was in the middle of me kind of coming out of that pietistic self-obsession. And I was wrestling with, because they talk about themselves as like worms and stuff like that. Um, right. But their, their self-conception is so radically different than, than our self-conception and self-obsession today. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, to my knowledge, it wasn't born out of some, you know, self-obsession. It was, it was theologically driven and yet they would right. still build things and they would, they would influence, they would uh, start <laughs> right. colonies and college, Harvard college. So like, right. uh, yeah, that just, that was a mind trip for me because I was reading it through kind of a very modern uh, liberal lens, you know, self-obsession, individualism. Um, right. But when you take them in their context, it's, it's very biblical most of the time and uh, helpful but you, you have to, uh, to use the word disenculturate, you have to really like get away from the modern world as it's, as it's been given to you and as it's trained you. And that can be really hard. Right. Yeah. I am, I am well, a worm whose, whose job is to glorify God. 
and and worm that yeah. I am, I shall. Right. That's right. That's good. <laughs> well, Adam, this was a this wonderful conversation. I hope uh, hope a yeah, lot of people listen you. to it, especially people that that move to my city. I want this to be something that people in our church can uh, can listen to, share with other other pastors. If people wanted to keep up with you, uh, see what you're doing, obviously they could they could yeah. come visit uh, Trinity Lutheran. Where where else can they keep up with you? Are you on uh, X or Twitter or anywhere else? Do you have a website? I, I am. I am not on X.com. Um, I am a recovering Amishman or something, um, originally from Pennsylvania. So um, <laughs> you can you can look up a brief history of power. We got two episodes a week. There's plenty to listen to there, and you can check out um, the family Bible commentary from Ad Crucem um, and kind of get back into Scripture. I hope in a big way um, through that. So just, and my last name is kind of distinctive K O O N T Z. If you Google any of that and attach Koons to it, you'll, you'll find me. Okay. Excellent. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you. Are you interested in entering into or fostering a biblical marriage? If so, set aside May 3rd to 5th, 2024 and join other young Lutherans and keynote speaker, Dr. Adam Koontz. That's me for a conference on biblical marriage at Grace Lutheran Church in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Come and learn what it means to have a godly marriage, participate in the divine service, meet like-minded folks, enjoy fellowship, and even learn a barn dance. We welcome singles, couples looking to get married, the newly married, and families. If you're a young couple, bring your third wheels because you just might end up with a fourth. Don't hesitate and register today at whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. That's all one word, whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. Your marriage is worth a trip to the Great White North. A Martyr's Death, The Hero's Life. The theme for the 10th Men's Gathering being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. Arrive as early as Thursday for a special bruise and cue session with Pastor Wolfmuller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church, where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider, one that values life no matter the stage, and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. 
Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.